I can invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 10. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at the commissioning or the sending out of the 70. And uh, one of the interesting things about this passage is that it is only reported by Luke. And uh, it's interesting, uh, different commentators, um, depending on how uh, firm they are on inerrancy of Scripture, um, compare this to some other uh, points in the other Gospels. For example, Matthew, in his uh, report of the commissioning of the Twelve, which we read about in the beginning of Luke chapter 9, um, reports some of the very same things that Jesus says to the Seventy. And this causes, uh, for those of you that read more widely, this is an aside, but this causes some uh, kind of confusion or consternation among those that are trying to uh, kind of harmonize the Gospels because they say, well, he's saying the same thing in Matthew to the Twelve and he's saying it to the Seventy in Luke. How does that fit together? Was it Twelve? Was it Seventy? What's going on here? But the reality is that, this, that there are some significant differences between uh, Matthew's report of the commissioning of the Twelve and Luke's report of the Seventy. One of the notable differences is that Matthew um, has Jesus uh, saying to the Twelve uh, disciples, do not go into the city of the Samaritans. However, Luke um, does not have that admonition. And the reason is because this is a different event. And it's not surprising that Jesus kind of has a, a template, a guideline for how to go out and what to do when you go, and that there are similarities. But there are also distinctive differences. And you recall from our studies in recent weeks that Jesus has now turned a corner in his ministry. He is beginning his journey down toward Jerusalem for the last time, ultimately the time when he is going to uh, be crucified on the cross for our sin. And he has set his face toward that purpose. However, in, in that journey toward Jerusalem, he could easily have walked it in uh, several days. But the journey actually takes between 6 and 12 months. Uh, the reason is not because he walks slow. Okay, <laughs> The reason is because he is meandering down back and forth through a variety of towns and villages, uh, bringing his last word to them in person. And he sends out the 70 to go to cities that he has already chosen, uh, to cities that he has specified that they would go and prepare the way for him so that as he comes into those towns, uh, they will already have some, some tilling of the soil, so to speak, and be ready for his own personal ministry among them. So uh, if you look with me in chapter 10, verse 1, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. This is another reason why uh, we're convinced that Luke has not made a mistake, but that this is another occasion of sending out disciples. Because he told us about the twelve, 
And now he says, 70 others. Uh, The implication clearly is, other than the 12, uh, or in addition to the 12. This is another uh, event at this particular time. And he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And then he gives them specific instructions. Now, for those of you that have been listening to me for a long time, you know that I virtually never use alliteration. But uh, this was just so cool, and it jumped off the page at me. I couldn't resist the five P's of the um, commissioning of the 70. Prayer, persecution, provision, proclamation, and protest. So if you can remember the five P's, you'll have... The, the direction that Jesus gave for the 70 uh, for their mission. And uh, the first one is, in verse 2, He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech or pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Uh, Jesus emphasizes the, the importance of prayer at the beginning of this mission. Not only for the 70 that he's commissioning, but for others that will take up the responsibility. You know, we often tend to think of Jesus' ministry as being confined to the 12. That's kind of, we're just used to thinking that way. And we say, well, where did these 70 come from? But let me ask you, how many were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost? 120, 10 times 12. There's 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. How many people during one of those post-resurrection appearances saw Jesus in His resurrected body after, before Pentecost and after the resurrection? What was the largest number? Does anybody know? How many? How many? 500. 500. Uh, in fact, Paul says more than 500 saw him at one time uh, after, the, after the resurrection. In other words, there were a lot of people that were following Jesus who had not been singled out for the unique role of the twelve, but who nonetheless were sufficiently committed to him that 500 of them were privileged with a post-resurrection sighting, and 120 of them gathered in the upper room to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Undoubtedly, these 70 were among that group. And so there, there was actually a fairly large contingent of followers. And it doesn't mean that they were all stringing along single file in a line down the path, you know. But uh, these were people that uh, were around him when they could be. They listened to him when they could be. Not everyone left their jobs and, you know, quit everything and followed him. But, but they were sufficiently committed that they were in his company uh, as often as possible. And Jesus obviously picks these 12 people. But he's saying, pray that, that even more will respond. And even more will go into the harvest field because now is the time. This is the moment for the harvest. Secondly, he says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. 
there is going to be persecution. We're often surprised at that. We, we are under the impression, again, because I think of our um, culture that is so, uh, you know, so wealthy and, and cushy and comfy, uh, we're under the impression that following Jesus is not going to be fraught with a lot of difficulty. But Jesus said to his disciples in his last discourse with them before the crucifixion, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He also said, if they hated you, they're going, uh, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Don't think that you're going to be greater than the Master and that you're going to go out there and they're going to roll out the red carpet for you. If they hated me, they're, they're going to hate you the same way. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's two very important words in that sentence. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There are no exceptions. If your purpose and heart is to live for Christ and to be devoted to His mission and His purposes and to be godly, you will suffer persecution. People are not going to always like you. In fact, they're, they're going to dog your steps and make your life miserable if they can. And certainly in some parts of the world, there are our brothers and sisters who are paying for their testimony with imprisonment and torture and with their lives. And so, uh, you know, we're actually living in a, in a place of privilege. All we have to put up with is people irritating us, aggravating us, and saying mean things about us. I had a conversation this past week with a friend of mine that I care deeply about and I pray for often, and, and it made me very, very sad as, as we were talking. Uh, he himself brought up the subject of scriptures in a conversation he'd had with another person and uh, essentially was casting the, the uh, most of the Old Testament in the framework of mythology. And um, in an effort to uh, kind of... <laughs> take the contrarian position and bring in some other uh, ideas and thoughts that were in defense of the argument of, of the biblical truth, um, ultimately, uh, this man who is a trained scientist and philosopher uh, essentially said, anybody that believes the Bible is literally true is a fool. They're an idiot. They, they, they just uh, are not an intellectual. They, they really are not very smart. And... Um, you know, he didn't use maybe those exact words, but that was the precise meaning that he was conveying. That, uh, and, and so no matter what I said, uh, those, those thoughts and those words were not acceptable because uh, it was like, don't confuse me with anything else. I've already made up my mind, and, and no intelligent person would, would believe that stuff. And, uh, you know... I, I didn't take offense at it. 
But I was wounded in my spirit that this man is unable to even accept an argument and consider it uh, as a possibility because of an inbuilt prejudice against that kind of, of truth. And we are going to encounter that. Jesus said, I'm sending you out. I'm sending them out, the 70. I'm sending you out. You're going to be like lambs in the midst of wolves. And people are going to despise you. There's only two kinds of responses to the gospel. When you share the message of Jesus Christ, people are either going to joyfully receive it, like we saw in the video, people are going to receive it with joy because it's the thing they've been longing for. Here's an opportunity to, to have my sins cleansed and to come close to God. People that do not respond that way, you are a reminder that they're a sinner and they're going to face a judgment. And they don't want to be reminded of that. They don't even want to think about that. They don't even want to think they're a sinner. In fact, they're offended by the idea that they could be a sinner and, and that they might have to face a judgment. And so they're going to despise you for being the bearer of news that could ultimately save them eternally. But they're going to reject you because you're bringing them this bad news that they don't want to hear. Jesus said persecution is going to be a part of your experience. And then he says, carry no money belt, verse 4, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to the house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in the house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter uh, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Uh, Jesus is saying to them, there's urgency to this mission. Um, by the way, it seems a little strange that he would say, don't give them your greeting. I mean, you know, what's the problem with that? Uh, you know, when we give someone our greeting, what do we say? Hi. And what do you say? Hi. Yeah. Or if you say, hi, how are you? What do you say? Fine, how are you? You know, we just know this. This is, and it's very simple, it's very short, it's very sweet. In fact, when I was in North Georgia going to school, it took me about a year and a half to figure out what people were doing. We'd be driving down the road, and you'd pass them, and they'd do this. You know? Um, they were using the index finger. Uh, when you, <laughs> when you would get, meet them, you know, head on, they would go like this. And, and it took me a while to realize they were greeting you. They're very friendly in North Georgia. And so when you meet them on the road, you know, I finally learned you're supposed to do this. When they do this, you do, you know, you, you greet one another and it's very brief. But Jesus is saying to them in the Middle Eastern custom, it's not brief. You know, it's, hi, how are you? I'm fine. Good. The Lord bless you. And how is your wife? She's fine. Good. The Lord bless you. And, and how, how are your sons? And you name the sons. And how is, you know, and how is your mother? And how is your father? And how are your uh, uncles and aunts? And how is everybody in your world? You know, it's that kind of a lengthy sort of uh, 
and, and Jesus is not so much saying, don't speak to anybody. What he's saying is, you're on a mission. I've given you a town to go to. I want you to prepare for me. You need to go with haste. You need to go focused. You need to go without letting things get in your way. You need to be moving quickly. Don't let stuff slow you down. Don't, don't be sidetracked. Keep going toward the focus that I've given you. And he says, don't take money bags and don't take this and don't worry about that. God is going to take care of you. If you go to a home that has uh, the, the peace of God upon it, they'll receive you. They'll take you in. Don't be worried about what they feed you or uh, maybe finding a better place to stay. That's not what you're about. Just accept whatever you have and receive it gratefully and stay in the same house and eat whatever they set before you. Boy, some of us would have a hard time with that. You know, we'd say, well, i got to find another house. I, I'm tired of spaghetti. I want to find something else to eat. But Jesus was in essence saying, you're on a mission. It's not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about... Uh, stopping and chatting and visiting and sightseeing. You need to go where I'm sending you. You need to get the job done. Time is short. Heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. Wherever they receive you, heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm becoming more and more impressed, and I put this out to you as a prayer challenge. I'm becoming more impressed that if the gospel message in our day is going to be effective, It needs to be accompanied with power, with signs and wonders. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. When I came to you, I didn't come with persuasive words of man's wisdom or or, uh, fancy words of logic and profound speech. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I came to you with a simple message Uh, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How many times in the Gospel of Luke have we already seen that the message is accompanied with power? That healing the sick, casting out demons, is a part of the proclamation. People need to know that God is able, that He is powerful. And that He can not only transform them spiritually, but He can meet their need physically, and nothing is too hard for Him. Friends, we don't see that in our our country today. We do see it around the world. There are testimonies in countries around the world where revival is is alive and active, and, and the Holy Spirit is moving upon people in dramatic and powerful ways. There are places where the demonstration of the Spirit and of power is the only thing that will convince people of the truth. And I believe we're coming to a time in our country where we need to pray for that. Um, So oftentimes we try to lead people to faith in Christ by logic. We try to argue them into the kingdom. And and I agree that apologetics, the, the argument for the truthfulness of the gospel, is intended for believers People who have come to faith in Christ and need to have the understanding uh, to, to support their convictions as they grow in the knowledge of Him. But apologetics is not likely to win a lost person. 
my friend is not going to be won by clever arguments. He's only going to be won by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction and awareness of sin and the reality of the Savior that will draw him to the presence of the Lord. And finally, Jesus said, if you come to a town that doesn't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. Go out into the town square and shake the dust off your feet. And let them know that just as they have rejected you, they're rejecting me. And my judgment will rest upon that place. And that, as Jesus says that, I believe, you know, if, if we know that we're nearing the end, we become reflective. It, it's human nature. We kind of tend to go back and we look and, and we reflect on our life and on the experiences that we've had and the meaning that those experiences have. And I think as Jesus is saying this to His disciples, when you go into these towns and they reject you, shake the dust off your feet, and He remembers Chorazin and Bethsaida, and the very town where He lived and and made His base of operations during His Galilean ministry, Capernaum. And He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. I tell you, if Tyre and Sidon had seen the miracles that you've seen and experienced the message that you've heard, they would long ago have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And it will be better for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, I lived in your town. You saw me every time I came home. You, you witnessed my miracles more than any other. You were there for the Sermon on the Mount. You heard my messages and my teaching as I sat in the boat in the Sea of Galilee uh, at the shoreline and I proclaimed the truth day after day, time after time. You were with me in the synagogues and you rejected me. I tell you, you're going down to hell. Jesus was grieving, I believe, but also pronouncing the judgment that would come for those cities that had rejected Him and turned their back on Him, even though a great majority of His Galilean ministry had occurred in their presence. And as I was preparing and mulling over this passage and thinking about it, I, I asked myself a question. How does God judge a city? Does that strike you as odd? How does God judge a city? How does God judge McHenry? I mean, will somehow at the judgment, will McHenry appear before him? And he judges McHenry? What is McHenry? Is it a, is it a place on the Fox River? Is it buildings and roads and construction? What is McHenry? How will God judge a town? He can't judge towns. He can't judge nations. He can't judge cities. But the Scripture says He does. How does He do that? He judges the people. He judges the leaders. He judges the kings and the presidents and the princes. 
He judges the aldermen and the mayor and the people of the town. He holds them responsible. If Hold that question or I'll lose my thought. <laughs> and so, what Jesus is saying is, a town comes under judgment when its leadership comes under judgment and its citizens come under judgment. Do you know that every town has its own personality? Have you thought about that? Towns have personalities. Not that the, the place on the map has a personality, but, the, but the, the town collectively has a culture. McHenry is different from Woodstock. It's, it's different uh, from Lincolnshire. It's different from Tampa. McHenry's its own personality. The United States differs from Great Britain and from Australia, even though we theoretically speak the same language. Every town has a personality. And how does it get that personality? It gets it from the collective influence of the people who live there and the leadership that they support and follow. Nations develop their personality from the leadership. You, you think about Hitler's Germany. I'm not sure that the German people ever saw themselves doing the things that happened in the late 1930s and early 40s. But a leader rose up in their midst that captured their imagination. That began to lie to them about what they could be and how they could become that way. And it appealed to their nature in certain ways that they embraced that leadership and they followed him. And as a consequence, a whole nation was moved by the leadership of a man that was about as ungodly as they come. And when you look back at Tyre and Sidon, in fact, in Luke, uh, not Luke, but in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, I don't think I've got time to read that uh, here in this service, but I'd like you to read that perhaps this afternoon. Luke, uh, Ezekiel, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 28, the whole chapter. Uh, there, Ezekiel is bringing a prophecy from God against Tyre and Sidon. And the prophecy is particularly against the, the prince or the king of Tyre. And as you get down into the middle of the chapter, a very peculiar twist occurs. Because in the middle of the chapter, God says to the king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, you were there in Eden. I made you perfect. You were the cherub that covers. You had a lofty position. And your pride and your arrogance caused you to rise up and say, I am a God. And sin entered your heart. 
and I had to bring you down. It's unmistakably clear that he is referencing Satan, whose name was Lucifer, the cherub that covers. And Tyre and Sidon, uh, Sidon factors in a little later in the chapter because it was in uh, league with Tyre in the treachery against the Israelites and, and their, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you, the betrayal of the Israelites. And God brought a judgment against them. But the interesting thing is that he likens their leadership to Satan himself. It's as if he were saying that the king of Tyre literally joined forces with Satan to become like him. And the people of Tyre embraced that leadership. And they followed him. And a judgment came upon them because of that. And then he says, Chorazin and Bethsaida... You're going to be worse off than them in the judgment because I was among you. I performed miracles. God in the flesh, you saw me with your eyes. You heard my message. You saw the miracles that were performed. And yet you rejected me. You're worse off than Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum. You're worse than Sodom. You're in deep trouble because you've rejected me. There's a strong lesson here for us, friends. The way God judges towns and states and provinces and nations and, and the geographic places of the world is He judges the leadership and the people collectively as a corporate unit. And to the extent that they are ungodly, to that extent does He judge them more harshly. You think about that when you think about our national leadership, about the presidency and the executive branch, about the Supreme Court and the judicial branch, about the halls of Congress and the Senate and and the legislative branch. You think about the, the leadership of our nation. God holds them directly accountable to the extent that they're ungodly. And God holds us accountable and responsible as a people for putting them there, for supporting them, for holding them up. Don't think for a moment that it's just the president that's going to be judged. How do you think he got there? He got there because the majority of Americans in the polls said, we want this. I'm not speaking necessarily about Obama in particular. I'm speaking about any president. The people of the nation embrace him. The people of a nation follow their kings. They follow their leadership. And to the extent that they embrace that leadership, to that extent, God will judge them even above and beyond their own personal sin. And for those who hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the judgment will be even stricter. You think about the, the, the gospel that this nation has enjoyed and the marvelous freedom and the open proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ through centuries. 
from its very inception. And today we have rejected that message and become post-Christian in our thinking and in our behavior. And friends, there is going to be judgment for the leadership and the peoples of this country above and beyond their personal sin. Because they have participated in deeds of wickedness. How does that affect you and me? Well, I have good news. God says to Ezekiel again in another place, if I give you a message to go and warn the wicked and to go and tell them about the wickedness of their ways and the judgment that is to come, if you do not tell them, I will hold you responsible. Your blood, their blood will be on your head. I will hold you responsible. Because you have not told them the message that I gave you. But if you go and you warn the wicked of their wicked ways and you speak to them the truth that I have given you. And they do not listen to you, but they turn their back on you and reject that message. They will die in their sin. But I will not hold you responsible. For you have done what I have asked. Friends, we have a duty and an obligation to share the message of Jesus Christ, even in a land that has turned its back on God. I don't mean necessarily you need to fill your pockets with tracks and stand on the street corner. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit. We have to be guided in effectiveness. And maybe He'll lead you to do that. I don't know. But uh, but you <laughs> I thought I heard that back there coming out of the corner. Yes, that was an amen. But he also may put people beside you to be praying for. He may be putting people in front of you to to speak to and cultivate and, and develop. I don't know if it's going to be a face-to-face confrontation in a moment of time or if it's going to be the cultivation of friendship and communication over a period of time as God gives you opportunity. But we cannot rest. We have that responsibility. We need to be praying for people. We need to be asking God for opportunity. Because we are the ones that have the message of hope. And remember, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. And Jesus said, if they reject you, they have rejected me. If they receive you, they have received me. You go in my name, and I will treat you as myself when you proclaim the message that I have given to you. We stand, I think, today in a time of great judgment. I think our nation is in serious trouble. We have really, really abandoned all sense of moral godliness. And we are headed for destruction. If Jesus Christ tarries, I don't know that we're going to find the United States alive and well when he returns. I don't know how long it'll be. I don't know what it'll take. But one day, 
his judgment will fall on a nation. His judgment will fall on a town, on a village, on a people. And our duty and responsibility is to be lights shining in dark places that as many as possible can escape. Maybe not the consequences of the judgment physically, but the spiritual consequences of rejecting God and find hope and eternal life in Christ. Father, I pray this morning that you would stir our hearts even as the 70 went forth with a great sense of urgency to carry the good news. Give us a sense of urgency, a sense of responsibility. Move upon us with a sense of duty. Lord, because you have loved us, And you have given us the message of your love for other people. Your forgiveness, your cleansing. The hope that is in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.